Welcome to For The Win, the podcast that goes behind the scenes of the campaigns, strategies and people that have changed Australia forever. I'm your host, Emily Mulligan. This episode is all about the United Nations. Is it useful for creating social change? Can it hold governments to account? Can it actually make the world a better place? And what on earth is Donald Trump doing to the world of global diplomacy? I speak with Louise Allen, who is back from four years in New York as the executive director of the NGO Working Group on Women, Peace and Security. She led a global coalition that lobbied the Security Council and brought women's voices from affected communities and conflict zones to the global stage. She successfully worked to have gender be a consideration in crisis situations around the world. Before that, she was head of government relations at Amnesty Australia. Louise tells me what it's like to try and shift government positions at the UN, how she tried to influence the Security Council and policies on peacekeeping, and why so many people at the UN are alcoholics. That meant you were moving to New York, That's living right. the Sex and the City dream. Uh, what was it like to turn uh, up for a job like that? The Sex and the City dream was way more glamorous and I never had that wardrobe. <laughs> um, but other than that, I definitely was in New York. So I moved in September 2014 um, and so I was there for four years and it was a ride. It, so my organisation is a coalition um, we start, when I started, it was 12, a 12-member 12 coalition, and when I left, you know, we'd grown it. Um, there was an 18-member coalition of uh, humanitarian, human rights and legal organisations that collectively lobbies the UN, particularly the Security Council, on women's rights, women's participation and women's access to decision-making in terms of peace and security. So most of my work was on the Security Council and sort of and leading a, a coalition so lots of stakeholders, um, but really interesting work. You know, so we were working across all the different conflict situations, so everything from Colombia, Afghanistan, Syria, Congo, Mali, and everything in between. Oh, my gosh. So you were getting, like, organisations working on the ground in those conflict yeah. areas and then trying to get women more involved yeah. in solutions. Yeah. So I really had sort of three jobs. One was to lead this coalition the second was to monitor and advocate towards the Security Council and the UN and peacekeeping missions to ensure that they're considering gender perspectives um, in the rollout of, of their work and new consulting with local women. And my third really important part of my job was to bring women's voices into these really difficult processes in New York so that women affected by conflict you know, in, in all of the conflicts that we were working on can actually be speaking to the decision-making, the decision-makers who are making such important decisions that will impact on, you know, their community. Mm. And so um, what would a typical day be like for you? I mean, we had lots of peaks, not many troughs, um, but lots of, lots of... And so we sort of followed very closely the work of the Security Council and to some extent we were able to map out 
I mean, some things were easy to map out. So when a, ma a peacekeeping mandate got renewed or when a report was, was due, um, some countries, because they were in such a state of crisis, they were, or the Security Council was meeting at least once a month on them, so like South Sudan, Yemen, Syria. So you always had sort of different opportunities to be trying to either increase uh, attention or, I mean, sometimes our work was also about trying to, th trying to prevent developments from happening mm. um, as well. So, the, I mean, we, I worked across 15 different countries. Um, so my daily work, sometimes I was running from different meetings and I'd talk to my mum in the evening back who's in Brisbane and she'd say, how many countries did you work on today? I was like, oh, today I worked on eight. And then also trying to you know, work on these different UN processes. So it was definitely not a nine to five job, but it was... It, it was, it's a one-of-a-kind uh, type of job that I did. And um, what do you think, what's the culture like at UNHQ? Yeah. Um, are people cynical and over it? Uh, or are people kind of there thinking they really can make a big difference in people's lives? I think there's... Um, so the, the three main communities in, at, H, at um, UN headquarters are... The, diplo the diplomats, which we call the diplos, all of the, U the UN secretariat, and then the, the NGOs. Um, and, and I always used to joke that you can tell, you can pick the NGOs from the diplomats in the UN because the diplomats in the UN are usually a lot better paid than the NGOs, but, you know, not less committed. But, the, I mean, the work is intense. Yeah. Um, and I think people start with optimism and you even see it with non-permanent members of the Security Council. Like they, they join the Security Council and they want to, um, you know, they want to, you know, uh, they want to change the working methods to make the Security Council, you know, they, you know, they come with big ideas. big ideas and then six months later they're like, oh, this is, this is difficult. So, and, and I think that's the, the NGO community in, in New York is... Yeah, I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but it's exhausted and it's relentless. And, you know, in the time that I was there, you saw situations like in Syria get worse, in Iraq get worse, in Yemen get worse. So there really is a feeling that the NGO community and the humanitarian community are working on more without seeing any sort of concrete resolutions to any of the crises that we're working on. So lots of cynicism, and to be honest, like, I would I would say probably I mean I'm not a um, statistician but the amount of alcohol consumption mm. and bad behaviour consumption I think is probably going up. You know everyone's sort of sleeping less, eating more, drinking more as a coping mechanism because a the workload is huge, but also the content is is not getting better. I mean there's pockets of wins, mm. but then the next day you know wins as you know, in, in the campaigns, that they're like small you know, small steps and then the backward steps are enormous. I mean, and you're, if you're talking to women activists from Yemen yeah. day in, day out, I mean, yeah. what must their days be like? You know, they must be taking yeah. a lot of that on. Yeah, and I mean, there was a, um, uh, a sickening report just got published just recently mapping some of the human rights, the appalling human rights violations in South Sudan. And that's not getting better. And, and there was in a province where the local commanders um, had lined up all of the young women as young as 12. The commanders got to pick their wives first and the rest were left to be gang raped by 
the rest of the you know the the rest of the the, the supposed trips. This happened months ago. I'm not talking about something that happened a decade ago. So, you know, we're seeing levels of violence against women. The rates of sexual violence are going um, through the roof. So, yeah, it's it, it doesn't feel as if you're necessary. You know, and particularly from New York, where working across so many different conflicts, it was really difficult to you know to identify the win. But what was amazing was the the courage that the local women activists would often, you know, often coming to New York and speaking out so on such an international stage, they're putting their lives at risk, but they understood the importance of them coming to New York to be able to have these conversations. So that's that's sort of what definitely what kept me going because it's it's easy to be cynical in New York, but women in in Juba, women in Iraq, women in Sana, you know, they don't have an opportunity to be cynical. Mm, for them, it's life and death yeah. stuff. I mean, so your organisation, um, yes. I guess while you were there, um, increased gender consideration in crisis situations from 39% to 97%. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? So, um, and next week is the annual Women, Peace and Security Open Debate. So you'll probably have about, oh, about 90 member states who'll come to the, the Security Council, they'll line up, give really nice statements and say that they really care about Women, Peace and Security, which is the the agenda of women's rights within a peace and security context. Really care about it, and then 1st of November, see you later, we'll think about this next year. And when my organisation, um, one of my colleagues is this amazing data and researcher, and the, her ability to be able to track nuance in language and in considerations. And so in 2015, um, we noted that the Security Council was only considering gender and women's rights and women's situations in a conflict situation 39% of the time, so, which meant that... And it was the, it's the old-school way of thinking women's rights don't matter in a crisis. Once the guns have stopped firing, once this new humanitarian situation is not on fire, then we can talk to women, then we'll sort of start addressing the skyrocketing rates of sexual violence, etc. So it was really obvious that despite member states repeatedly saying that they care about this issue, mm. that it wasn't a top of mind or considered when a country's on fire. Mm. So, you know, with that data, we were able, you know, we developed you know, country-specific strategies with working with the local women where we had such tailored recommendations for each time the Security Council met to ensure that it was talking about the, both the protection and the participation challenges of, that that women were facing, you know, and really working with all of the council members, and then the you know the UN system and sort of other friendly member states to really try and increase that number. So yeah, so that's what that statistic means. So that in so twenty in twenty fifteen it was thirty nine percent, and then in twenty seventeen it was ninety eight percent. That's great. So it's just kind of always been considered. It's yeah, it's almost. It, there were only two document. There were only two decisions where it wasn't considered. And you know, some people might say, "Well, what does that matter?" Well, it's, it's very different you know, from our perspective. If we can't get the Security Council to be thinking about gender, we're certainly not going to get the peacekeeping, you know, the leaders of peacekeeping missions to be consulting with women or you know, bearing in mind that they need to implement in the field a peacekeeping mandate that actually serves all of the population. And I'll give you one 
again, it's a South Sudanese example. Um, I mean, South Sudanese, South Sudan's on fire. So in um, there was a there was an incident called the Terrain um, Hotel incident where all of these women, so both uh, South Sudanese women and uh, international humanitarian staff, were ended up being trapped in this hotel in Juba, and and mass sexual violence occurred. Um, then the Security Council responded. You know, there was there was obvious outrage. Uh, and concern, and also because what was concerning was that the peacekeeping base was two was less than two kilometres away, and they weren't even able to deploy a contingency to protect or prevent an imminent attack on all women. Mm-hmm. Um, so the response from the Security Council was to increase the in, increase the troops, change the mandate, have a much more um, reactive peacekeeping sort of mission in South Sudan. And even though it was an incident against women that triggered this response, the word women didn't even feature in the mandate. And for them it was, we had to sort of really go back to basics to explain you need to be talking to the local women because they know how to establish protection mechanisms around them. And they're like, oh, oh yeah. So it was like it's frustrating that you're still having to make really simple dots, like join really mm. simple dots, which you would we would have hoped that at this stage you don't need to do anymore. I mean, I've definitely come across the view that people um, can be really down on peacekeeping because often peacekeepers themselves in a conflict area can lead to sexual violence. Yeah. I mean, they're the ones committing it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, dropping military, foreign military into a war zone not great and sometimes they're not able to respond to things. What do you think? Do you think we still need peacekeepers? Yes, absolutely. But, I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated and political environment. Mm. I mean, A, um, I don't think since Libya there's been a, um, an intervention. So the peacekeepers are there at the, ho- at the invitation of the host government. Mm. Um, so there are many... So there's access issues and, you know, we see that in... Uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, for instance, where the government is is um, impeding access and humanitarian access in some in some areas as well. Mm-hmm. the The problem is is that the the mandates are becoming really complicated, um, and the number of armed groups that they're working with is is sort of increasing. Mm-hmm. But there's there's definitely a role, particularly in terms of protection of civilians and you know security sector reform, um, and you know, in, in Congo. The, the peacekeeping mission there has a really important role to help secure the elections that mm-hmm. uh, will be taking place in, in December. So there's... But the old school notion of peacekeeping needs to change and it needs to be a lot more community responsive. And sort of that goes back to a lot of the advocacy that we were doing that... And it's the same thing in Central African Republic, for instance, where in all of these countries... It's usually the women who are who can't access the local decision making processes, and you know they're usually the ones who are disproportionately infected by the violence. Mm-hmm. Yet they're not consulted, they're not considered, um, or they're fighting to be considered and have access to these really important processes. And so, Louise, before you went to New York, yes. you um, were head of government relations at Amnesty Australia. Yes. So what is the difference between trying to shift um, uh, Australian MPs' position on something and 
a country's position on yeah. something at the UN. Yeah. Um, well, the UN's a you know when people criticise the UN for it to, for being bureaucratic, it's like well how can it not? It's got over one hundred and ninety members. Um, so you know people and people who say oh, I don't like the UN, it's like well that's like saying I'm not going to take an umbrella out when it rains because I don't like the rain. Like you know so the mm. so yes the UN is complicated and it's frustrating and it's there's a lot of reforms that need to happen, but you know that's the that's the house which brings all of the member states together. Mm -hmm. um, but what I realised was that in, in New York, what was really needed was that the decisions made in New York are really made in capital. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for uh, advocates in New York to be well connected to and understand how domestic pressure and um, campaigning works because the, the New York communities while there's information that gets sent back to capitals, decisions get made in capitals. Um, and then the, the way the decision makes, you know, it's, it's more, you've got the opportunity to be able to sort of build momentum on an issue. Um, and you know, at the Security Council, for instance, so you know, when, when Sweden came onto the Security Council, you know, Sweden's the first feminist foreign, uh, it has the first feminist foreign policy, and really wanted to make sure that uh, women's rights, women's participation were prioritised in all decision makers. So we were able to work with them, mm -hmm. but then also bring on other member states who said that they were sim you know, sympathetic to the agenda as well. So it's not necessarily targeting one, one country, but trying to build coalitions that will support progress or that will fight against backward steps. Um, and it's also about making sure that the women's organisations are working with the humanitarians, are working with, you know, the the human rights organisations. So it's it's sort of almost like lateral, horizontal mm -hmm. advocacy and sort of coalition building versus the the two party system and then the the minority parties as well. And and because in Australia, you know, for Amnesty, what was really important is building the the constituency base and the, the constituency campaigning, whereas in New York you don't have access to the constituents, but you have to be closely communicating with your colleagues who are in capital. Mm. One of the, I think, points of this podcast as well is to show that um, change happens when people make it happen mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we're always having to kind of drag our yeah. politicians to, you know, for example, marriage equality. Yeah. You know, that took a long time, a lot of work and uh, the country was definitely ahead of the parliament. And the interesting thing about the UN is I think sometimes the UN is ahead of countries, right? Yeah. Um, especially some countries where the status quo, like, is unstable well, and... The one of the challenges, and particularly with working on gender and, and women's rights, and but you know, uh, colleagues you know in, in different fields sort of share the frustration is that in New York, for instance, you wouldn't have you would have um, even the most conservative of member states say publicly, yes, they support the women, peace, and security agenda. So it became you know, and at the open debate, you had really conservative member states lining up and giving you know sometimes a pretty innocuous statement, but publicly saying. They support women's rights, maybe not the full spectrum of what we define as women's rights. But so it, it becomes quite difficult to sometimes advocate because they're not outwardly saying that they disagree with your position. Whereas it, whereas in 
in a two-party system, we know the position they are, that you will, and you, it's there's a different way of manoeuvring it. Whereas in in New York, you'll have conservative states, yeah, who. And my favourite was I would always, oh no, Louise, you don't have to worry. We care about women's issues. I was like, well, no, you don't. You don't. <laughs> and I know that you're telling me that, but I know in closed doors that you're going to block this language or you're going to try and block progress on this. So it becomes this really two-faced way of communicating the public and then what you get, what you hear from, from diplomats that, no, actually, they're, they're trying to block this you know, the development of this policy. Oh, my God. You know, having to lobby, like, like in code, basically. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and I think, the, you know, the other challenge is, is that, I mean, as, as, as you know, like progress is hard won. And there are, you know, we've certainly seen the impact that conservative member state coalitions can have and if the you know the you know let's call them the progressive um if they asleep at the wheel or you know blink and miss something really important negative developments can occur or can almost occur and there was an example where um so the human rights council had voted for the establishment of a special rapporteur on lgbtiq plus rights so specifically looking at human rights violations for that community which and it passed in Geneva, um, but then at the General Assembly in New York, a number of member states were unhappy that there was this new special procedure specifically investigating these human rights violations, and they started mounting a, a, a counter resolution to scrap a position that had literally just been established, um, and NGOs started warning that this was happening, that the, the conservatives were mobilising and that they were, you know, they were going to bring a vote to. Um, and it was, it was really narrow. I mean, it was, it was narrowly defeated, but it shouldn't have got to that stage. And it was the NGOs who warned the, the group of like-minded countries that this was happening. And if it hadn't been for the NGOs, the vote probably would have happened and then a positive would have been taken away within about two months. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And what, in in your experience, makes a country shift their position? Like, is it that constituency stuff back home? Can you just lobby really, really well? Do you need to tap, you know, New Zealand on the shoulder to get Australia over yeah. the line on something? Like, how does it work? I mean, there's so much um, groupthink, mm. right? So... Um, once there's momentum on something, like member states don't want to be left in the cold unless it's something really specific for them that you know they've decided is against their national values or in their national interest. And you know I think we've seen the the different you know the change in voting patterns, particularly on resolutions affecting Palestine, mm -hmm. where you know where there's a momentum building there among member states, and member states certainly don't want to be left out when they see that something's moving. Um, but I, I, I think so in terms of the Security Council, it was often trying to get two or three council members who could then bring on the other ones and then you know hopefully you're in a situation where you've got ten member states saying yes 
and five not that enthusiastic but they don't want it to be they don't want it to come to a vote where they have to publicly vote against it because all of the voting's public so that's that's the way but it it's all connected back to national politics mm. and just yeah the- high school approach of not wanting to look bad or being on your own. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you have to use whatever you can. So I was thinking about one kind of recent example in Australia where Australia applied to be on the Human Rights Council successfully, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, they're absolutely still torturing people on Manus and Nauru. Bit of a contradiction. Um, And I know that, you know, there was definitely a campaign considered... um, here in Australia that, you know, we should try and stop Australia being on the Human Rights Council because we're doing these... We run these camps that have been widely condemned by the UN, among other things. But on the other hand, it was kind of used as a moment to put pressure on Australia internationally. Mm -hmm. And I think Australia even signed um, a treaty, an anti-torture treaty, which is, you know, it's good. It's good that we did that, um, despite the fact that we're still running these camps. Like, where, what do you think about how it all fits together yeah. and these contradictions and yeah. whether or not we need to stay really involved in these processes, even if we're not always doing the right thing? Well, Eritrea just got elected to the Human Rights Council. Um, and it was either Human Rights Watch or it was Amnesty. It was one of those two who described Eritrea as the human rights gulag. Um, so, you know, and, and, and that's problematic. But the, the issue of... And, and there's a much bigger challenge in terms of human rights advocacy at the UN and, you know, we're seeing huge backward steps uh, being taken and sort of the, the human rights advocacy infrastructure is being... It's not even being chipped away at, it's just being hacked at um, and in terms of the funding, in terms of the, the, the institutional support that human rights monitoring within the UN has. So that's a, a, a huge concern. I mean, the fact that Australia... W- wanted to be on the Human Rights Council gives that opportunity for additional advocacy. And so many people ask me, so, well, why does it matter if the Human Rights Council passes a, a decision, you know, a resolution damning, you know, damning the military in Myanmar or you know, calling for, you know, cessation of hostilities in Yemen? Um, what I've learned is that member states really pay attention to international criticism um, and that's why it's important to be able to continue these institutions where member states supposedly I don't I'm, you know it's not perfect in any way shape or form but there does need to be a culture of monitoring and speaking out on human rights abuses the problem is is that as you said is, is that the what happens in geneva doesn't happen in in australia and it was the same thing when australia was on the security council that uh, Internationally, Australia has a really progressive reputation for being an upholder and a promoter of women's rights and of human rights. And I'm not saying that it hasn't engaged in uh, in diplomacy on those issues, but people were aghast when, you know, having just come from Australia, having done immigration in, um, detention inspections, of telling them Australia's policy. I mean, now, because there's been so many negotiations on on, on the refu- global refugee compact and sort of global refugee agreements, there's a lot more awareness of Australia's situation. Um, but it, it is a, a very frustrating 
dichotomy between the Geneva and the New York worlds and the capital. But what I hope is that if our colleagues around the world, you know, in, 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 in Poland, in Ukraine, in, you know, if they are paying attention to what the governments are saying, because a lot of this is on the public record, then hopefully it's an advocacy opportunity and tool for them to be able to use back at home. The problem is, is that in a lot of countries they've got huge problem, you know, huge freedom of expression problems mm. and crackdowns on civil society and so forth. But hopefully it's at least a vehicle through which to have some sort of accountability. Mm. And yeah. the god-awful elephant in the room, yeah. what is Donald Trump doing to the UN? What okay. is happening? <laughs> so let me give you a very concrete example of... So his soon-to-be outgoing ambassador, Nikki Haley, came in and said that she was going to completely cut the peacekeeping budget and that she, you know, and that was one of their first goals for um, 2017. So huge cuts to the peacekeeping budget. And what we started tracking, and it didn't take us long to do this is that the gender functions in peacekeeping missions were being disproportionately impacted. So human rights, protection of civilians, and gender cuts were the first ones to be cut. Um, and almost every single peacekeeping mission had its gender team reduced. And so when we, when we took that to members of Congress of both sides of the aisle. They're like, no, 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 that's not the intention, you know, that's not the intention. It was like, you know, but so we were able to show that a, a financial decision was having drastic, you know, dire ramifications on the ability for missions to be engaging with women who are, you know, the most vulnerable in those communities um, in, in, in places like in Central African Republic. And so that's just like the, the budget um, mm. and the, imp you know, the implications of... Of the budget, and let's talk about the gag rule. So the yeah. gag rule, which has it's the, I mean it's cyclical. So you know every Republican um, administration reintroduces it. Democrats. Um, so there was planning, you know, from both from NGO side and from you know, UN side, particularly UNFPA. You know. um, but so you know the gag rule um, is a strict. It's a pro prohibition from the U.S. government that no recipient of US government aid is allowed to talk about um, abortion. So even in instances of rape, even in instances, you know, and so it, so it's a, it has huge uh, funding implications for recipients of American aid and Amer you know, Americans are still huge donors. Um, but they you know, so, but they, with, we, they changed and expanded the gag rule which meant that even in, in situations, you know, even in Zika-affected areas, for instance, when malaria-affected areas, um, any NGO that receives American money is not allowed to talk or provide the option of the termination of pregnancy. Um, so that's had huge impact. But what, you know, what we have seen, and a positive result was that, was that you had countries who, again, in... in Sort of a, formed a coalition and created the She Decides conference. So, I mean, it was Nordics, it was Europeans, but it was led by the Dutch, um, and they all chipped in to try and fill this huge 
empty hole that had been left by the US administration because the US administration completely pulled its funding from UNFPA. Um, so that meant that there was a, a huge gap in terms of av available resources for women's health and women's maternal health. I can go on, <laughs> but... But it's, know, a this is a it's a half an hour <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just, you know, and, you know, yeah. So it's just awful. And has it changed the sort of culture, vibe, mood of people working on UN, at the UN, people working on crisis stuff? Yeah, well, and I think it really changed, and, I, you know, and it changed how the Secretariat and, you know, from the Secretary-General down, and, I mean, no-one was expecting him to win, and I don't think that there was a contingency plan of just, you know, just have it in your back pocket just in case. Um, and so when he started talking about completely cutting, you know, completely cutting US's funding from, from the UN and withdrawing the US from the UN, and so all of a sudden you're having a fundraising conversation with your biggest donor and your biggest member versus what we would like, you know, mm. you know human rights, you know, human rights, women's rights conversations... Um, yeah, you're and, back uh, yeah. to survival mode. Yeah, and, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before, you know, that we really think that the human rights infrastructure at the UN is under crisis. My goodness. So if you could change one or two small things about yeah. the UN, or anything, yeah. what, what would you change? Magic wand, wow. Magic wand okay. for the um, whole United Nations infrastructure. <laughs> Wow, I hope it's a really powerful uh, magic wand. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a frustrating, it's a hugely frustrating mechanism, but it's what we have. And without that, where else do you bring everybody, all of the member states together? But two really sort of practical things that I would do is, I mean, definitely the 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 human rights infrastructure and the advocacy monitoring within the UN needs to be strengthened, needs to be safeguarded. Um, I think there's a little bit of tension, but you know, you've got the well. It's it's no secret. You've got China. You've got Russia. You've got you know. You've got the, you know. They're having these very complicated funding questions with the U.S. Whereas you know, so other member states really need to step up and ensure that there is the human rights conversation and monitoring continues because that's a key component of the UN. The second component is um, there needs to be a reconsidering of civil society access to UN. So we've seen in the last two years, even you know, really well-established and accredited organisations are having their accreditation suspended or um, delayed, which means that they can't even access the building to be monitoring these really important discussions that range from everything from climate change to counter-terrorism to food provision to, you know, to humanitarian all of these conversations are happening at the UN and the civil society access is being restricted. Like is being is being completely squeezed. So Louise, you are now back in Sydney. Yes. Lucky us. Yeah. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and people can hire you. That's that's right, sure. Yeah, I'm open for business. <laughs> I am after four years, um, I well, you know, I've got very sort of exciting family news. I'm about to have a uh, a nephew very soon and I thought well why be on the other side of the world when I want him to you know this little baby needs to know his auntie Louise um so yeah so the reason you know and after four years um I thought it was time to move back uh, and actually the the di most diplomats 
leave after four years in, in New York because it is pretty full-on. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I'm back in Sydney as a consultant uh, and fingers crossed it, it works out. Excellent. We'll put your uh, link to your website and stuff on the Excellent. podcast notes so people can check you out. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Louise. Thanks for having a chat. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to For The Win. I'm your host, Emily Mulligan. You can chuck us a review on iTunes or share this podcast if you're enjoying it. Cheers. Cheers.